0: Before we get into the holy scriptures, I wanna tell you a little tale from Grimm's fairy tales. And there's a method to my madness. This Grimm's fairy tale was about this, the discipline of spinning, uh, which was not uh, what you might think, but it was a term used to spin on wheels and make yarn out of flax, and it was an old school discipline. The story goes, there once was a girl who was lazy and would not spin. Her mother could not persuade her to do it no matter how hard she tried. And finally the mother had had it, the bad attitude, the laziness. And so she took her out behind the woodshed and was gonna give her a good spanking. This uh, young, you know, upper teens girl. Um, And there she was giving her a big spanking when the queen of of the realm was riding with her entourage by and she heard the screaming of the young girl. So the queen said, stop, and she jumped out of her, you know, carriage and and jumped in behind the barn and said, what's going on here? And the mother was sort of shocked and really ashamed to tell her how lazy her daughter really was. So instead she said, I'm trying to stop her from spinning. Um, That's all she wants to do. Day and night she just spins, Uh, I'm a poor woman, I can't supply enough flax for her to make yarn. Well, the queen answered and said, hey, I like nothing better than the sound of the spinning wheel. And I always feel happy when I hear it's humming. Let me take your daughter with me and she shall spin to her heart's content. <laughs> the mother was not, not, not at all sad, uh, and actually glad to get rid of her daughter. So she agreed to let the queen take the girl with her. And when they reached the castle, the queen showed the woman, the young girl, three rooms full of the nicest flax eyes had ever seen. And she says, if you are able to spin all this flax to my satisfaction, these three rooms full, I will make you the wife of my eldest son, which would make her a princess. But if you fail, you'll be banished from the realm forever. (laughs) Well, excited about the possibility of becoming a princess, she was inwardly sort of happy, but also terrified because she didn't know how to spin flax. She never really did it at her mom's house, even if she were able to live a hundred years, she wasn't able to spin that much flax in a matter of days. And so for three days, she sat in the, the palace there in those three rooms, just crying. And she didn't uh, you know, spin a, an inch of, of thread or yarn. On the third day, the queen came in and said, what's going on? Why aren't you spinning? And she, the girl, you know, excused herself by saying that she'd not been able to begin because of the sorrow of missing her mother. And uh, her loving mother, she wanted to go home, but the queen sort of dismissed her concerns and said, sorry about that, but tomorrow you'll begin the work or else. When the girl was then alone again, she couldn't figure out what to do at all In her frustration and tears thinking, oh no, I'm gonna be banished from the realm forever. And she gazed out the little castle window of one of the rooms and she saw three women walking by. One, One woman had a broad flat foot that caused her to walk with a limp. Another woman had a flat, uh, fat lower lip that hung down below her chin. A, a third woman had this massively huge thumb and looked very ugly and kind of sore. And when they saw the girl, they stopped at the window and asked what was going on. And she said, oh, I've got this problem. And she explained her problem. And the lady said, hey, we are spinners. That's what we do. And here's the thing, we'll come help you spin only when you marry the prince, Invite us to your wedding and don't be ashamed of us. Call us your cousins and sit, we'll sit at your table. And, and if you promise this, we'll finish your flax spinning in a very short time. Oh yes, I promise with all my heart, she said. So they, they, they came in and started spinning away. And the woman, you know, uh, the women came in and began spinning, but the, 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 every time the queen would come, she, she would hide the three you know, spinners. And, and the queen would say, wow, you are an amazing spinner. And this went on for quite some time. The queen amazed at the heaps of well spun yarn and, and there was no end of praise the girl was receiving from the queen. When the first room was empty, they went on to the second and then to the third, and then all the flax was spun. And the three women left saying, "'Do not forget your promise "'and nothing bad will happen to you.'" Well, the girls showed the delighted queen three empty rooms. Um, they were quite pleased. The prince was even pleased to have such a diligent, hard-working wife that was beautiful. At the same time, um, she, she said, "'I have three cousins, prince and, and queen. Uh, "'I'd like to invite to my, our wedding.' And they said, "'Okay, whatever.' Well, the queen and, after the queen and the prince said, "'Yes, the wedding feast began, "'and in came the three spinsters, "'and they sat down at the head of the table, "'and the prince was surprised at their appearance. "'Oh,' he said, "'I didn't realize you had such dreadfully ugly relatives.' He went up to the first spinster looking at her broad, flat foot and said, how did your foot become so large? From the pumping of the treadle, from the spinning wheel, she said, from pumping. He then went to the second spinster, how is it that you have such a great hanging lip? From licking thread, she said, from licking. And then he asked the third, how is it that you have such a huge thumb? From twisting, from twisting, she said. The prince considered this for a moment and announced From this day forward, my beautiful bride shall never touch a spinning wheel. (laughs) And they lived happily ever after. You say, Brett, you just wasted valuable Bible study time (laughs) telling us a horrible story. Now, as you were listening to that story, you know, Grimm did this story on purpose. And if you kind of read, you, you, it's kind of funny what Grimm was doing there because the point, and I told the kind of the Reader's Digest version of it, but the point of the story is as you were listening, you, you kept thinking, oh man, she's gonna get it. Pretty soon, she's gonna get it. She was almost getting it with her mom, then she gets off and then she gets to go to the castle and, but she's gonna get it. And she's not gonna keep her promise with the three ladies and she's going and you, the whole time you're kind of feeling like this. And at the end, you're like, how is it that this, this girl, lazy, deceptive, unworthy, being made into a princess, and she gets away with it. Nothing happens to her, and she lives happily ever after. That's that's horrible. But that's what Grimm wants you to think, Grimm's fairy tale. But you know what? That story is the same thing that the gospel story does for you and me. Do you understand that? You and I are the lazy, sinful, deceptive, unworthy ones that Christ comes and does all the work for us and we get to be his bridegroom and live forever happily ever after that's what grace is all about like the girl you and I we we deserve banishment from the kingdom but god in his great mercy has sent his son jesus that we would never have to pay the penalty of our own sin jesus bore our sins set us free God's given us eternal life through his work on the cross. Man, how thankful I am for that. And and it's good for you and I to remember, we don't deserve that. We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't, if we deserved anything, we, we deserve death and hell. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, death and hell. But God's grace, that's where you and I, we get to live in eternity in heaven with the Lord forever and ever. That's the story of God's grace. And that's why, I think it's important. You say, well, Brett, what does that have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Everything. The Sermon on the Mount is the same purpose, to show you and I that we don't deserve it. We we fall short. There's nothing about you or me that's good enough to get to heaven. And Jesus is gonna nail that point home over and over. Last week, uh, like the fairy tale, Jesus was calling out sin and saying, poor behavior, unless your ex- righteousness, Jesus said last Wednesday night, we were studied, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, those are strong words. You know, uh, it's interesting, no, no, no hope here. And, and we saw on Sunday, be ye perfect. I think, well, man, I can't check that box, at least not yet. But we'll talk about how maybe you can check that box even tonight, and uh, that's kind of an important thing. Now, before we dive back into this, one thing about this I want you to see is Jesus in his teaching here, the Sermon on the Mount, he's going against everything that they had learned traditionally. All the stuff they grew up with, hearing from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the various rabbis that were teaching, Jesus is turning all that stuff Backwards, or I should say right side up, uh, when he corrects wrong thinking. Let me, let me, this is something to kind of get the nuance of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you begin with me back in chapter 5, look at verse 13, Uh, pardon me, Uh, verse 21. Look at verse 21. Um, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said of them by old time, and then look at verse 22, but I say unto you, look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, verse 28. But I say unto you, verse 31. It hath been said, verse 32. But I say unto you, again, verse 33. You have heard that it had been said, verse 34. But I say unto you, 38. You have heard that it had been said, but I say unto you, 43. You have heard that it had been said, but I say unto you, verse 44. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is saying, "This is what everybody else is saying, but I say." And and wh- whose word really matters? Yeah, Jesus, his word is gonna trump every other teacher or, uh, you know, uh, Pharisee or Sadducee because he's God in the flesh. And so this is what Jesus does. And, and this is an important thing for you and I as Christians to realize the Sermon on the Mount, that's what it's doing. It's saying, everybody else says this, but I say unto you. And we have to be careful in our day because everybody's got a lot of things to say. People have things to say about marriage. People have things to say about divorce. People have things to say about gay marriage. People have things to say about life and what's good and what's bad. And, you know, and, 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 and what, what's interesting is Jesus in his word, the whole Bible really says, but I say unto you. And we have to remember to submit to God's word because his word is in fact truth. So that's hopefully what we see here. We left off, if you remember uh, last time here, uh, not, not quite getting through chapter five, And I'm really thankful because, um, you know, uh, one of the things we have to remember Jesus doesn't give the solution to man's problem in the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason we say that is because he is the solution. That's something to keep in mind. He is the solution to the Sermon on the Mount, he's the living, you know, answer. And we're going to see that. Um, Remember how the three spinners were these uh, sort of ugly ones who did all the work? Um, How can that be anything about Jesus? Well, isn't it interesting? I'm I'm reminded of uh, Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, where it says this. It says, but Jesus made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, um, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Um, This is what Jesus would do for us. And I'm so thankful. So we keep that sort of in the back of our minds as we're reading the Sermon on the Mount because you might even think of Jesus as sort of being harsh a little bit when you read some of this stuff. But you have to remember, he's the one who made himself of no reputation and did all the work so that you and I could be saved. So let's remember that. Let's pick it up, uh, Matthew chapter five, right there in verse 31. It's where we left off last Wednesday. 531, it says... Jesus said, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give, give her a writing of divorcement. Now now, pause just for a second uh, on this. You say, Brett, you only got through one verse. That's uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but before we dive into what Jesus is gonna say, but I say unto you, um, at that time there was a popular movement in the first century time of divorce among the Jews. The Jews had uh, interesting two sort of schools of thoughts uh, that would fall under the category of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, um, there were two schools within the Pharisee teaching, the Shammai and the Hillel. Uh, And the Shammai uh, were an interesting group. The Shammai people were more of a conservative uh, in their scriptural interpretation. They took the scriptures more literally, the Shammai group would. Um, and, um, And so in Deuteronomy 24, The interpretation of divorce was granted only on the account of uncleanness or defined as sexual impurity or adultery. So there was a group called Shammai saying, yeah, adultery is the only grounds for divorce. The second teaching within the Pharisees was a group called the Hillel Pharisees, um, the Hillelites, as they were called. Um, They were more on a liberal, uh, yeah, loose goose, whatever the Bible, we don't really care about the exact things the Bible says. Um, Deuteronomy 24, their interpretation on the grounds for divorce, that it makes anything marriage unclean. Uh, So they really opened that up. Um, you know, more broad than just sexual immorality. Anything, anything that made your marriage unclean. And and so this is true. There's like uh, they found archaeological writings of divorce where uh, a, a man said, the, "My wife poured too much salt on my dinner, and she made our marriage unclean by doing so." And so that's grounds for divorce. Uh, so it got ridiculous. You could basically, if your wife looked at you wrong, you could sort of say, "Ah, divorce. I have biblical grounds for divorce." Uh, sounds a little bit like today. Um, now, uh, all that to say, we have kind of that same liberal thinking when it comes to divorce, and 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 the question is, what are your views on divorce, and what are my views? And the answer that I'm going to give to both of us is, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what your views are or my views. What does Jesus have to say about this? Um, and 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 what this is what is. Div- being debated here in Matthew chapter five is, you know, this idea of marriage. So Jesus says, uh, you know, uh, it's been said, whoever shall give, put away his wife, let him give her a bill of divorce. That was, that was as common as anything in those days. But verse 32, I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. Now, on this, um, this is an interesting thing because uh, there's a couple things here that we need to say. First of all, I want you to see something here that Jesus acknowledges something that some of you hippies didn't. Hippies, Brett, why are you calling us hippies out? Um, Because, you know, maybe it's not just hippies, but if you got married around a tree in the woods, just you and God, and you got married because you love each other and you made a pact to one another, you're not married. Well, Brett, I don't care about government. Well, as it turns out, Jesus does. That's just something you should know in case you're sitting here thinking you're married and you're, you may not, not be. You think I'm joking. This happens. I hear this. Well, we just kind of got married before God. We, but no, Jesus talked about a bill of divorcement that was actually an institution of marriage uh, acknowledged by government as being a, 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 a you know, pact between one person and another to stay joined together. And, uh, and Jesus sort of signs his name to this when he says, um, but I say to you that whoever puts his way, uh, his wife, you know, he, he's saying without, without cause, uh, and he, he's talking about this writing, verse 31, a bill of divorce, but the idea is divorce is something Jesus says it's legit. It's something that does happen and it does require the writing. Jesus sort of signs his name to that. And that's kind of an important, important thing just because uh, some people and some young people today are kind of saying, yeah, we don't really need. Now I get it. State of Oregon is not really the esteemed government system that we love. But what do you think they felt about the Roman empire at that time? Um, or really, the corrupt Jewish uh, Sanhedrin and, and all the government forms. Whether you're talking about the Jewish undergovernment or the Roman iron fist, either way, it's a bad scenario. But Jesus still sort of signs his name to the idea of uh, you know be, making it official legally. That's kind of an important thing. Um, so, what constitutes divorce? And what this this raises another question here: What constitutes divorce and then remarried? Uh, here, are some people say, depending on where you go. Um, uh, go to church or who you talk to, some of you have maybe been divorced and were told you could never be remarried ever again because of what Jesus says here because you're just gonna commit adultery again. What's the deal? Well, let me try to help you with some of these questions. By the way, later Jesus is gonna talk about this in Matthew 19, when he was asked by the, you know, the, those around you know, why the law permits divorce. And he says, the Lord allowed it only because of the hardness of your hearts. From the beginning, Jesus would say in Matthew 19, 80, he said, it would not so. Divorce was, ne- God never intended divorce to be part of the human experience, just an FYI. Um, and it grieves them according to the Bible. Um, and uh, when we harden our hearts and break the covenant that the Lord created in marriage. And that's why, you know, we're, we read in the Old, Old Testament. Remember, a few weeks ago, we read about, you know, that God hates divorce. That's strong language in the Old Testament. But things to think through here um, Jesus gives only one legitimate reason for divorce, and that's adultery. Some of you might be protesting, as would I except for I I choose to be a Bible believer and and I choose to say I'm gonna try to take the Bible as clearly and literally as I possibly can. What about abuse, Brett? Um, Shouldn't that be grounds for divorce? Um, If you're asking me, I would say, yeah. If a guy is physically abusive to his wife, um, by the way, did you know that um, 40% nowadays of people that are reporting spousal abuse is actually coming the other direction from women to husbands now. It's like, it's going both ways now, interestingly enough. Uh, but all that all that to say, um, I, I would have probably put that on the list. If I were there and if you made me God, you should probably be glad I'm not God. Uh, <laughs> but if I were God, I'd say, yep, physical abuse, absolutely grounds for divorce, but Jesus doesn't actually give that one. Now, let me say this uh, because I always, whenever I teach this, There's always people online saying, Brett says that if a woman's being beaten by her husband, she has to stay with him and be beat. Uh, Have I ever said that, ever? Uh, I've never, not in all the years of my ministry, have I ever said such a horrible thing. Uh, But people say that I've said that, I haven't. But what I do say is if a woman is in a house being a physically abused man, we've got to get her out of that house. Uh, Let's just put divorce off the table for a second and talk about safety and love, and blessing, and what is kind, and and compassionate. And that is to get that person out of danger, that woman out of danger, um, and make sure that that, uh, right things are done. Um, But the right things, as it turns out, doesn't include divorce at this point. The Bible doesn't give us that. Uh, It might, uh, you know, we might encourage separation, and we'll definitely encourage for help and healing for the woman, we'll encourage jail time or whatever for the man, counseling, whatever we can you know, work on or talk about. But I'll tell you, uh, this is this is one that I, I don't want anybody to think. If you're being physically abused, you need to get out and the church, if, you, if it's family that can help you or the church, we're happy to jump in and help in those situations. Um, and I think that that's where the church really should actually step in and jump in and help. So all that to say, uh, what about physical abuse? Uh, get her out of the house, help her. Uh, get the marriage. The, I think the goal is to get the, the person restored and healed from whatever anger, whatever horrible things. And once it's safe, and um, it may never be safe again, I've seen situations like that, uh, but it, once it's uh, there's repentance and help and counsel and, and accountability, then I've seen some amazing situations where marriages have been restored and even blessed in those horrible situations. So... Um, uh, Uh, All that to say, what about verbal abuse? Well, I think if I'd said what I said about physical abuse, then verbal abuse doesn't count. And I think just about every couple, uh, I understand there's there's people that are really horrible verbal abusers. I understand that. And uh, I would say the same thing about them in some situations where there needs to be help and intervention, of course. Uh, but uh, not necessarily, Divor- divorce, divorce is not the solution for that. Um, it's interesting, you know, some instances very, very bad, uh, whether it's verbal abuse or what have you, but it shouldn't be sort of a buzzword. I've noticed over the last couple of decades that, you know, abuse is the buzzword. And then you ask, well, what kind of abuse? And people are just looking for, you know, uh, ways to get out of their marriages, sadly. Um, Now, uh, this is a tough subject because some of you got divorced and you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. What does that make you? A sinner. But you shouldn't be shocked because I'm a sinner and all of us have sinned. See, it's so funny. Brett, you called me a sinner. You shouldn't be offended when Pastor Brett calls you a sinner uh, because you are a sinner and you're worse than you even know. And so am I. Like like it, it always cracks me up when people think, oh he called me a sinner but it's like oh man you don't even know how bad a sinner's we all really are we we are so bad the bible you know it's oh, the bible tells us that over and over so once you become comfortable with the idea oh man I fall short there's nothing in me that's good Paul the apostle got to that place when he said there's nothing in my flesh not one thing that is good uh, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do and he says there's no good thing within me like like You gotta get to that place. So don't be so easily offended when somebody says, you're a sinner. So if you've been divorced, you're a sinner. Good news. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Now this is an important thing to know because um, this answer starts to answer the question, uh, you know, uh, a a few questions. Um, By the way, um, why is divorce such a bad thing? Uh, we have to kind of ask that question too. And I think Jesus sort of spelled this out in Matthew chapter 19, verse six, when he said, wherefore they are no more two or tween, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put us under. The idea is when a couple gets married, it's not just a sexual joining. It's not even just a legal joining. It is all those things, but it's also a body, soul, spirit joining that God does. Um, it's a mystery of marriage that God joins two individuals to become one. So what God puts together supernaturally, don't let man rip it apart is the idea, put it on sender. So there's a tearing that happens. And, and by the way, so when even, even in the case of adultery, that's why divorce is so painful you know even if it was adultery you know and and the person has the right or the grounds for divorce it just rips people and it rips children and families and loved ones and people friends it just rips everybody apart it's so brutal god hates divorce because i think of its destruction but the lord is good at uh, healing mending and he's gracious and merciful. Don't forget that part. So, um, so oftentimes uh, that's pretty hard to heal. It's one of the reasons uh, adultery is the one that Jesus gives us because adultery already does rip and tear that relationship. Um, it's interesting what the Bible has to say about sexual adultery and unfaithfulness in marriage, um, you know, and, and also about remarrying someone else. There's all kinds of questions. Um, and, and, and the thing is, um, here's, the, here's a question that kind of joins in with this. When, when the Lord Jesus says, and if that person marries someone else, they're committing adultery again because they've been married once before. And so some churches have taken the posture and said, once you're divorced, you can never remarry. Um, and I would say I disagree with that biblically, and I'll tell you why. Um, I would agree with it, but I disagree with it. I would agree with it on a couple things, but first let me tell you why why I disagree. The best commentary on the Bible, by the way, is what? The Bible. So, so if you're ever wondering about these questions, search the scriptures. Don't search other commentaries or see what Pastor Brett has to say. Um, what you have to do is say, what does the Bible say about some of these nuances? And I think the Bible gives us everything we need. Let me give you a few scriptures here. Matthew 12. This is an important thing. Um, by the way, Proverbs 6.32, but whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacks understanding, he that doeth it destroys his own soul. So this idea of adultery, that's part of that ripping process. It's not just a legal chopping, it's a solical chopping that takes place there and it destroys and that's the problem. Um, But be that as it may, Matthew 12, this is where I, I disagree with those who say you can never remarry and it has to do with forgiveness of sin. If you're a divorcee, can God forgive you of your sin? Yes, this is where Matthew twelve thirty one and 32, very clear. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world or in, neither in the world to come. Um, the Greek word for all means all. I love that. Uh, because it says, you know, um, you know, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto man, except for one blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now we're gonna be in Matthew 12, just in a few weeks, and I'll go into depth about what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in a nutshell, uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus Christ. John 14, 15, and 16 makes this really, really clear. Let me just quickly give you a quick scripture for you note-takers. Uh, John 15, 26 um, says this, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will uh, send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So what is the Holy Spirit gonna do? He's gonna come and testify of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit churches that are a little bit majoring on the Holy Spirit with a minor of Jesus, I think they're missing the point. The Holy Spirit is point, meant to point back to Jesus. If, a whole, if the Holy Spirit's moving in a church, which you sure hope that's happening, the result won't be people going, wow, we need more of the Holy Ghost. Wow, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost healing and tongues and prophecy, and woo, Holy Ghost. Um, that's not the good result. The result is Jesus, wow. Look at Jesus, that's the work of the Holy Ghost. He shall testify of me, Jesus said. John 1613 through 15 says a similar thing. howbeit when he the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you in all truth, he shall not speak of himself, but uh, whatsoever he shall hear that will he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. that's what the Holy Spirit's uh, work is to do for he shall receive of mine and shall show it to you all things that he Uh, pardon me, that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So the the main takeaway here, and I'm not going in depth on this, but the work of the Holy Spirit is to, um, you know, uh, point to Jesus Christ. And you all had that before you were a Christian. Um, You can go ahead and uh, understand that the Holy Spirit was with you before you were even saved, tapping you on the shoulder and saying, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to repent of your sins. And if you... Listen to that. Then you did not speak against or blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But um, if you said, "Yeah, whatever," I don't need Jesus, and you reject Jesus, then you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And and so, really, in a nutshell, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to say, "I don't need Christ. I don't need salvation. I can do it on my own, all in my own way." So, very, very important to understand that. Now, this is interesting because there is the sin that's unpardonable and it's not divorce. And I, Can I just add one to this that some people get confused on? Have you ever been told, and I think if you were raised in the Catholic tradition, uh, that oftentimes some of the sects of Catholics uh, believe that suicide is also, because you know they don't understand you're saved by grace, not by your works. And so it translates into saying, if you've committed suicide, then you're going to hell because you're in the act of committing sin. Is suicide sin, anyone? Yes. yes. Uh, but uh, is it the unpardonable sin? No, because there's only one, the Bible says. So uh, there's an interesting debate about that, but I think that should end that debate. Uh, Now, are you encouraging suicide? Of course not, Uh, um, but uh, suicide is still not an option. But if a person, and this is important to understand, if a person is at a place where they can commit suicide, they're not probably in their right mind anyway, And what you do hope for that person is that they had a a knowledge of Christ and a point of repentance uh, before that suicide. And just because they died in the act of a sinful thing of suicide doesn't necessarily mean that we're not gonna see them in heaven. Does that make sense? And it has to do with the unpardonable sin. So all that to say, um, now, if you keep going with this, um, if the Lord is able then to forgive divorce, which he does, what does God do with that? What does God do with a divorced person when they've, con- they've repented of their sin and they've confessed their sin? Then what does God do with that sin? He forgives. And when God forgives, what does he do? He forgets. Isaiah 43, 25 says it this way. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgression for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Hebrews 10, 17 uh, says, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Again, this is something only God can do. You and I, you know, we remember the sins we've committed against each other. And even if I choose to forgive you or you, me, we'll we'll choose to forgive, but we'll still remember that sin. We're good at remembering sins. Don't you wish you were like the Lord and you could just really forget those sins that have been committed so there's no bitterness. Uh, But all that to say, um, divorce is not the unpardonable sin and, um, and it is forgivable. And if God forgives that, then he has forgotten it. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the way the Lord does this. So um, what does an Eighthy Creek um, premarital uh, counseling appointment look like? If you come in and you've been married and divorced and you come in and you're wanting to get remarried, uh, because I know there's a lot of people that are really afraid. I could see it, man. I've, I've only done hundreds of these kinds of appointments. I've done over a thousand weddings. So I know uh, these, I'm familiar with this, okay? So you can always tell the couple comes in with a bead of sweat coming down their brow and they're like, oh no, we've got to talk to Pastor Brad and he's a Bible literalist. And oh boy, here we go. And I asked that question, have you been married before? And then, oh, you can just see it's like pain and suffering and you're sure that I'm not going to marry you and I'm going to reject you and say, get out of our office, sinner. Um, but that's not, that's not what actually happens here at ATHE. But I will warn you. I will warn you. There, it's not like we just say, oh, cool, whatever. You know, uh, See, there, there's a thing that, remember when I mentioned sloppy agape last, last Sunday? There is a thing that you can do with that. And, and, and see, Jesus is making a point that we don't want to undo, of course. He's saying something that I don't think we should say is not true just because of other scripture. I didn't say, you know, so when Jesus says, but I see whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery. And whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. I'm not saying that Jesus is not correct on that. I'm saying, yes, I always agree with Jesus. There's a, there's a committing of adultery with someone who's uh, you know, been married before and there's other passages, we'll get into it in Matthew 19 that even talk more clearly about this. So, so brother, are you saying that what Jesus said is not true? Here's what I'm gonna say. If you come into the office and say, yeah, I divorced my other husband because he was a jerk and I didn't like him and you know whatever, he's just a loser. Man, suddenly big red flags come up and I'll tell you what red flags I have is that you got divorced perhaps or vice versa, the husband saying, yeah, my wife, she was a loser, whatever. Um, There's no repentance. Divorce, the the previous marriage and divorce was not considered sin, and you're still in that sin. Then I think what Jesus is talking about here still stands. You have to repent of your sins to have God forgive you of your sins and for him to forgive you and forget all those sins. Apart from repentance, there's no forgiveness. So those stodgy old churches that say, yeah, sorry, if you've been married before, uh, you can't get married again. I agree with them on every point of that, except for this, unless there's repentance. If your previous marriage, you said, okay, I, I own whatever role I, well, Brett, I was perfect in the marriage. It was, she was the one who was sinful. I don't believe you. Sorry, um, it's all sin. The Bible says sin. Oh, you're calling me a sinner again. Get used to it. We, we all need to get used to that. Um, we've all sinned and, and you'll be so much better off when you finally just go, I am a sinner. And I did play a role and I have to own that and repent. And Lord, forgive me for my sins on that. And that's where the Lord will come in and be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And it's not until you get to that point. So as long as you're still kicking on the whole divorce, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm concerned that you might be committing adultery if you get remarried. However, if you've seen your error and you've confessed to the Lord, then I believe the Lord's word is true and he's forgiven you. And there's a new start for anyone who, and they become as good as a virgin according to God's economy, but there has to be repentance. Um, So repentance, forgiveness of sin, um, have they really, uh, you know, asked for that forgiveness? Um, Well, Brett, what if you're divorced and you're, you remarried in sin without repentance. Brett, you're trying to cover all the bases. Yeah, I sure am. What if you're divorced, you got remarried and you never really, so are we living in adultery right now? Um, and should I dump my husband because I'm, I'm married? And uh, um, no, if you're married, God wants you to stay in your marriage right now. That's just the rule of thumb, even if it was. But you can, you can at any moment say, Lord, forgive me for all my shenaniganry for all my stupidity and all my sinful attitudes and actions, but, but uh, the Lord will be able to forgive you. And that's so important. Since I'm talking about marriage and what have you, I, and, and with our culture and everything, I have to add this one on, what about gay marriage? Um, what, what does the Bible say about that? And boy, you'll hear every number of things, but I'm just gonna tell you really clearly and straight, but I also wanna say this as lovingly as I know how. But it doesn't sound loving, but it's just, it's, I'm gonna start with what the Bible says. According to the Bible, marriage is always ordained by God as a lifetime union between a man and a woman. The Bible's clear on this. Matthew uh, makes it really clear along with Genesis. This is you know, basically Matthew, Jesus quoting from Genesis. And Jesus answered and said to them, you, um, have you not read Genesis? that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Wasn't well, that interesting? As it turns out, there are two genders. Um, verse five, and he said, "'For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother "'and shall cleave to his wife, "'and they two shall be one flesh. "'Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. "'Wherefore what God hath joined together, "'let not man put asunder.'" So gay marriage or same-sex marriage is a perversion of the institution of marriage. And it is an offense to God, which created marriage. It was God, marriage was God's idea. Um, and as Christians, you have to understand we're, we're not supposed to condone sin or ignore sin, but share the love of God. And we need to act, and this is where we have to be really careful. Um, we have to act as sort of ministers of reconciliation. Like it says in first Corinthians, You know, we're, that that's where we've been given this, this ministry to reconcile humanity back to God. And we get to be helpers with that. Um, And so if a person's living in in the homosexual lifestyle and gay marriage or whatever, they're living in sin. So the loving person wants to help them reconcile back to God. And so we point to the forgiveness of sin that is available to all, including homosexuals through Jesus Christ. So homosexuality according to the Bible is sinful and wrong. So once you start talking about gay marriage, once you've already established the first part, then you don't even really have to talk about the second part about marriage. Uh, the bottom line about gay marriage, every mention of marriage in the Bible uh, refers to the union of a male and female. It's clear. And the Bible very clearly, uh, uh, six times in the Bible very clearly con- uh, condemns homosexuality as immoral and unnatural even. the, the uh, Romans even talks about that. Romans 1, 26 through 27, read those, those two verses. Uh, and it says that the homosexual act is shameful and unnatural. These are, you, you think that's homophobic and bigoted uh, in our culture. They'll teach you that, but this is what the Bible, this is what God says about the homosexual act. First Corinthians 6.9 states that homosexuals are wrongdoers and they will not inherit the kingdom of God, along with a lot of other sinners who need to repent on that list there in 1 uh, in, uh, uh, Corinthians 6.9. So um, since homosexuality is condemned by the Bible, it follows that homosexuals marrying are not part of God's plan or his will. In fact, it's called sin. So that's just an important thing to say since we're talking about marriage. Back to biblical marriage, the Lord wants to give you and your husband or wife uh, the strength to persevere in your marriage. Divorce should not be uh, part of your uh, language. It should be the D word in your house. If you're thinking about divorce, you gotta stop and repent. Um, well, what if my husband has committed adultery? Um, well, there, that, that is a ground for divorce, but I would shroud your life in uh, counseling and wisdom. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. And I've noticed that it's not all as mathematical as, well, he did this, so we're gonna get a divorce. Um, I have seen on rare occasions, but where the Lord heals, even the marriage that has suffered adulterous acts. I'm not gonna say it's uh, without... Um, wounds that will last a lifetime. But I have seen where the Lord will heal even that. So uh, just J- Jesus saying this doesn't mean you have to have a divorce if there was adultery. For some of you, you that might be more information that you were looking for than you were looking for. But man, our, our society is very confused on these issues. Um, and I hope that that brings a little clarity uh, to, the, to the discussion. Well, back to our text. Um, Matthew chapter uh, five, verse 33. He gives us another, you have heard that have been said. In verse 33, again, you've heard that have been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Um, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. "'Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, "'because thou canst not not make one hair white or black. "'But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, "'for what whatsoever is more than these cometh from evil.'" Would you mark that last phrase, whatever you know, is more than these comes from evil? There's a word left out of your English translation. I think the New International gets it better translated there. It says, when it says more, anything more than this comes from the evil one. Does some of your translations say that evil one? That's really accurate. The idea is that comes from Satan. To sort of hem and haw and not be clear with your yes or your no and uh, sort of promise and say, I promise on a stack of Bibles, you know, and um, you know, uh, but Jesus says, don't even swear at all. Um, I swear, I swear, you shouldn't. Um, You know, in business, uh, we used to make deals even when I was a kid, I remember, you know, uh, people that my dad would work with and work for, they would, they would have handshakes. And you could trust someone's word. If you gave them a handshake, it was good to go. Those, are so, those days are so long gone now. You, you can sign a 40-page contract and they're still gonna uh, mess you over and, and work you over uh, or a glitch. Uh, I found a glitch, so I guess I don't need to pay. Uh, and so you know what it meant, they know what it meant, but you found some kind of a glitch. And so people are just really good at uh, not keeping their word. And and today, uh, it's such a rare thing. Um, but I, I wonder if if basically, if we follow what Jesus is saying here, that is you and I should be men and women, people of our word, to the nth degree is what Jesus is basically saying. Um, if you ever read Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, um, which is, I think, a must read, um, he describes meeting an ex-slave from uh, Virginia. Um, and um, and uh, he, he said, I've, he wrote about this, I found this man who made a contract with his master uh, two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation, to the effect that the slave was gonna be permitted to go free, but he had to purchase himself. From the slave owner in the South, uh, by paying so much per year for his own body, so while he was, you know, and this would take him decades to pay off his own body to become free in this plan, um, but um, before he was able to pay that off, the Emancipation Proclamation came and the freedom of slave slavery um, was was uh, made possible, um, but. Interesting finding that he could secure better wages after the freedom. He moved to Ohio when he became free, went there, and when freedom came, he was still considering himself in debt to his master $300, which back then was, you know, might have been a million dollars. Um, notwithstanding the Emancipation Proclamation, freedom from any obligation to his master. Um, and this black man walked. Uh, years later, the greater portion of the distance, back to where his old master lived in Virginia, placed his very last dollar with interest interest in his hands. And he, uh, you know, uh, Booker T said, in talking with me about this, the old man told me that he knew that he didn't have to pay his debt, but he had given his word to his master and his word is something he had never broken in his life. So he felt that he couldn't enjoy his freedom until he had fulfilled this promise to keep his word. I would have just said, take a hike uh, and maybe punched him in the face on the way out. But that's just evil me. Um, You see these stories of these people, like we looked at on Sunday, um, love your enemies. Oh, this is such a hard thing. You hear a story like this and you think, oh, integrity to the the next level. Um, But this is what Jesus is saying. If you say you're gonna do something, then do it. Um, and that's what Jesus is saying. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. By the way, the Pharisees, Jesus talks about something here. When he, when he says, you know, don't swear by heaven, because uh, that's God's throne. Don't swear by earth, um, you know, or by Jerusalem. You see, they'd always swear on something greater. Uh, and that's, that, that, that idea of swearing went all the way to you and me when we were kids. You remember, we used to say this, you know, I promise on a stack of Bibles, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Like, why did we say such a horrible thing? You can't, as a kid, you know, you can't think of much worse than sticking a long needle down your eyeball. Um, so, you know, that meant you're really, 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 really telling the truth this time implication that if you don't say that, you're probably lying. Um, By the way, when I was a kid, my parents did not allow us to say, I swear, or even I promise, um, because my parents would teach us these family devos that Jesus said, just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Um, The fact that you're saying I promise means that people must not trust you. Uh, to, but to be a person, Christians, we should be the ones full of integrity and, uh, and that you can trust and do business with. And, you know, um, did you guys see the Babylon Bee? They always call it out uh, and it's painful. But do you see this one? Christian plumber compensates for being a terrible plumber by putting a fish on business card. Um, boy, that's too true. And I hear that from people. I, I've heard people say, man, if you go to their website and you see a fish or a Bible verse, Run. You know, have, don't let them do the work because they're going to rip you off. And, and that's really sad because that's kind of the way it's gone. Um, and, and some people will avoid Christians because their reputation of integrity has been lost. Um, we need to fix that. As Christians, we should be the highest level of integrity. And that's what Jesus is basically saying. Anything more than your word being yes, yes, or no, no, it comes from the devil. That's what Jesus just said. So that's pretty radical. Well, back to our text in Matthew five, verse 38. It says, you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him on the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. When Jesus says in verse 38, you have heard that it had been said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This this actually is, this is an Old Testament Hebrew Bible section of scripture called the uh, lex talionis, um, which is the laws of retaliation which is kind of an interesting uh, thing. The law was given to protect the innocent, to make sure that reality, retaliation wasn't um, overreached um, and what have you. And these, these laws of retaliation are listed. You can jot them down in your notes if you wanna do a deep dive. Leviticus 24, 20, Exodus 21, 24, Deuteronomy 19, 21. But, but basically Jesus is gonna take these laws like he does all these other, you've heard them say this, But I say to you, man, if a guy punches you in the face, turn the other cheek and let him punch the other cheek. Um, You know, Jesus elevates the laws of retaliation, but elevates them interestingly toward niceness and toward um, benevolence and big heartedness. Um, And uh, it's harder for the person that's been wronged to do this, to actually do be kind to our enemies and do good to those that persecute and despitefully use you. Retaliation comes really naturally to human flesh. Um, now, there's some questions that are obviously raised all the time here, um, especially as we live in a day where, um, you know, uh, what what a day we live in America with um, people arguing, and the the world's going nuts, and the corruption in our culture and our government, and what's happening. Even this week, uh, people are just kind of like, well, what are we going to do? There's, there's people even threatening to say, we're gonna take over our country hostily. Like I've heard that, people are talking about that. And so what do you do with Jesus saying, turn the other cheek if somebody taps you on the shoulder. By the way, this tapping on the shoulder right here where it says, if any man will um, com- um, compel thee, verse 41, to go a mile, go with them too. Who would make you walk with them a while? Well, there's actually a story there. In the, in the first century, a Roman soldier had the legal right to tap you on the shoulder with his staff and he could give you his armor and make you carry it. And legally he could make you carry his armor for one mile. That's the thing that was going on there. So here's Jesus, and if, 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 if one of these guys tell you go a mile, you go two miles. Yeah, but Brett, he's our enemy. Two miles. Yeah, but Brett, the Roman empire was an evil empire that was going against you know, the poor Jews. Two miles. This is what Jesus said. And so it's really hard because we live in this strange day where people are debating, you know, guns and we gotta defend our nation and and laws and stuff like that. What about warfare? Uh, Because it seems like Jesus almost comes off a little bit like a pacifist here. What about guns and weapons? And what about pacifism? Uh, Is that what Jesus is arguing? It's interesting because, um, you know, should we have as the United States, you could ask this question, have turned the cheek to Adolf Hitler? well, as it turns out, um, again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And one of the things you see in the Old Testament, let's just talk, and boy, the, the idea of pacifism, uh, I have friends who are pacifists and they make compelling arguments, I just have to say, uh, more than I would have imagined because I, I don't really come from that sort of persuasion and it's very not natural for me to think that way at all. And I'm not a pacifist as it turns out. But I, I, I do wanna say that I I think there's a, something that we can learn from some of our pacifist friends. George Fox College, because they're uh, Quakers, uh, they're into pacifism, that's part of their, their thing. Um, but they make really good oatmeal, but, uh, those Quakers. But, uh, but other than that, um, they, teach, they teach pacifism. Um, but should we have turned the other cheek with Adolf Hitler? And I think the answer is no. And I'm really glad we went to war against the Nazi Germany Third Reich and all that stuff. Why? Because there was so much injustice. And as it turns out, the Lord uses governments and nations to right wrongs. That's something that's all throughout the Bible. And some people might, I've heard some people argue, well, that's the Old Testament, the New Testament, Jesus had turned the other cheek. But you have to understand, what does the Bible say? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. He's unchanging. So we have to understand there is a place for uh, military battle and, and war. Um, and, uh, and here, I think one thing we can know for sure, Jesus is saying, if you're just lashing back at people in anger towards someone, that's sin. That's what Jesus is talking about. Um, if, if it's you personally just getting angry at someone, you and I are supposed to turn the other cheek. This is a personal heart toward our enemies that I think Jesus is teaching us about. Um, Other scriptures line up with people and nations to bring godly judgment and even control of wrong behavior. Um, Luke 22, uh, verse 36 says this, "Um, then said he, Jesus unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his scrip, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Why did Jesus want the disciples to go and sell uh, their garments, uh, their fancy coat to get a sword? To chop onions? I don't think so. This was uh, for, for self-defense and for protection. Now, all you Second Amendment people and uh, what have you and stuff, and you know, everyone's like, yeah, the Bible says get your weapons. Um, well, it does say that, but this is the one little threat. I see the Second Amendment people hanging on to this Bible verse with all their might. <laughs> Jesus said, buy a sword. Hang on. Uh, <laughs> they're hanging on with their life. Um, um, and, that, and you could do that, I suppose, but Here's what I worry about, you know, um, some of us that, you know, enjoy shooting guns and stuff like that, and, and, and also understand for self-defense and stuff like that. Um, the thing is, I, I think there's this attitude that has crept into our nation, especially in the second amendment people, um, where it's like, you know, basically if somebody's even lightly wronged you, shoot them dead, get them. I have the right to defend myself. You know, if you do this or that, you know, and, I, and I worry that we've lost what Jesus is saying altogether. Um, so while I do believe, uh, the Lord uses, um, self-defense, even that's why he told his disciples to go buy a sword and for sure the Lord uses military and police. Uh, Romans 12 is such a key passage, 17 through 21, uh, it says there: recompense to no man, evil for evil, provide things honest inside of all men. If it be possible now mark that if it be possible, which the implication is sometimes it may not be. Are you guys with me on that? If it be possible, let me give you an example that was not possible in my opinion. Did you see last week, uh, we all got maybe even sadly, uh, probably sinfully, a sick joy out of seeing something that was actually seemed kind of right to me. Um, did you see that big guy that was going around in New York City? There's a, You know the trend of, uh, of sucker punching people? And this guy went and sucker punched like eight people just walking down the street, poof, poof, He was just knocking people out left and right. And he was, uh, you know, kind of a bigger guy and all this. When um, one guy, another guy sees this, runs up to the guy that was punched and, and he says, are you okay? And he says, no, I'm not. And the guy realized that there were people laying on the street behind this dude. So this guy who happened to be a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu, um, an MMA artist, and he went and jumped and got the back of the guy and got a seatbelt, what do they call it, a seatbelt uh something or other, hold, you know? And, and it was so funny because the guy was like, Aah! and this, this, this guy who was black belt, he's just kind of holding this guy and he's like, ow, ow, ow. And the, the guy's just kind of videotaping and making sure he doesn't have any knives or <laughs> weapons and stuff. It was like, it, he made it look really easy. Um, but then what happened was all the people that got punched and, and the people that saw this came and stood around and started wanting to kick him. And they were like, oh, awesome, hold him. You hold him, I'll kick his head. And that's what was going on there. But the, the guy said, stop it, everybody back off. And he's, I'm calling the police, this, we're gonna handle this lawfully. And I thought, wow, that guy, what, a, what an amazing guy. Cause he, he didn't allow the unjust recompense, but he did subdue the guy and turned him over to law enforcement. The law enforcement shook his hand, thank you, sir. Like the video is actually pretty great to watch. And, and, and you, you see, I believe that's really more the, the balanced approach where Jesus said, bring a sword in case you need it for defense. Um, there's, there is a time and a place. But it says, you know, if it at all be possible, if it's possible, which in that situation it wasn't, this guy was just going punching people down the street. But if it's possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. So you better have a really good reason if you go to physical force uh, or weaponized force, you've gotta have a really legitimate reason. Uh, but if it be possible, to live as lies with you, live peaceably with all men. Dear beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him; if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. But not be, be not overcome by evil or of evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, that last phrase is what you and I should be focusing on. You see, I worry that we as a, um, you know, the extremes in our culture and all this stuff, it's so hard to find the sweet spot, but this is the sweet spot right here. What Romans tells us, if it's at all possible, live peaceably. Don't give place to wrath. God's gonna get vengeance on the wrongdoers and the evil workers. Um, if it's at all possible, do that. And I will repay, the Lord says, so if your enemy's hungry, give him some food, like go the other direction and don't be overcome by evil. Get all angry and try to get back, but overcome evil with good, do something. And this is what we talked about last Sunday. Love your enemies, Jesus will teach us. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because it says, some of you, I know what you're thinking. I know some of you guys, you're like, yeah, but it says, if you give him drink, guess what you're doing? You're heaping coals of fire on his head. Ha ha ha, burn his head off, yeah. Um, easy tiger. <laughs> do you know what it means to heap coal? This is a funny thing because this is something we don't do in our culture. But did you know that if you didn't have a fire in your fireplace at your home in the first century, you'd go to your neighbor who had their fire going and they would wrap up coals in, in, in a, a sort of a wet towel thing sort of. And, and it would was, be it was where you could get the coals from their fire because you didn't have a beck or whatever matches. So you'd wrap the coals up and you'd run across and put the coals on your head and then you'd walk home and then you'd unfurl those coals and start your fire. So you were actually, by heaping coals of fire on their head, you're actually warming their hearts and warming their house and making it so they could cook food. It's a little bit opposite of what you thought. Um, that's what the Lord Jesus calls us to do. Um, so yes, there are cases um, where I think the Lord does put it within us. I think he even put it within men, particularly, um, to feel defensive and, and even to, to look out for those that are maybe not able to protect themselves. There's something the Lord built within us instinctively that I think is to say there's a time and a place, but, but where we need to live our lives and operate is this, if it be possible, live peace, peaceably, being kind to those and even doing good things to those that have wronged us. But there are times, Adolf Hitler, there are times, the guy punching people, sucker punching people on the street, where you do need to do something. And I think it's unrighteousness to not do anything in some of those situations. Um, so be careful uh, as you're seeing people on YouTube and all excited about their militia and their weapons and their bunkers and their, all this stuff. I think as Christians, we, we need to err on the side of being living peaceably and doing what Jesus told us to do, loving our enemies, very important. Um, uh, by the way, when it comes to the law and uh, military, this is the passage. I know there's a lot of, a lot of words on this slide, but this is huge. Because uh, some people you know, say, defund the police, and some people are anti-military. Well, as it turns out, but the Bible says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the orders of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror unto good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to good for, uh, to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Well, Brad, Paul, when he wrote this, he sure didn't understand our government that's corrupt now. Remember who was the, who was the governor and the leader of the world at that time? Caesar Nero, the craziest leader in all the world's history. Uh, Nero was nuts. And, and that's the one who was the power that is be, uh, the Romans at that time. So does God know who's in charge? Yes. Um, the one who bears the sword is the minister of God. So we need to be praying that our military and our leaders of our military are truly this. Uh, we need to be praying that even more so now because here's what happens. Sometimes these powers that be that the Bible ordains, they become a corrupt. What do you do when these guys become corrupt? Well, we've seen how that works out in history. I'm just gonna give you, I always like to red flag something when I say, here's an opinion. Um, so I'm gonna say something that's an opinion. I'm just gonna tell you my opinion on this because I've wrestled with this for years. Uh, should the founders of this nation fought the Revolutionary War. Because the biblical verses you could apply if you want, could be obey the powers that be. King George, King of England, they were the powers that be. Anyone who resists that power, you're resisting the ordinance of God. And they were, you know, taxation without representation. Uh, Was that a good enough ground to say, these guys are corrupt? Well, actually, this is where it helps to know, (coughs) excuse me, the history of the American Revolution. There was a lot more corruption than just taxation without representation. There were uh, unjust trials happening. Does that sound familiar? Uh, there, were, there were like kangaroo courts and stuff and people being judged without any real fair due process of law under King George. And, and there was all kinds of corruption going on. And one thing, I'm just gonna say this, this is where my opinion is, I think the Lord does um, um, sort of draw a line when a government goes corrupt, like let's just go crazy for a second and say Nazi Germany. There was a point where the German government was no longer Romans chapter 13. Would you agree with that? Yeah, the the Romans and also the um, Nazis. Uh, Somewhere along the way, the Nazis crossed the line and God said, you know what? Your empire is done. And God ordained that the Nazis would be crushed by the allies and thank the Lord for that. And then those became the powers that be that are Romans 13 again. Here's an interesting question you and I should be praying about right now, because in my lifetime, I've never felt like this until recently. Could our nation be dangerously teetering on this point of total corruption, where our government has become so corrupt and even our powers that be, the FBI even, I can't even believe I'd say that, but you kind of start to wonder because there's been provably corrupt things in the last few years where we kind of have to say, wow, is there a point where God's gonna draw a line And that's what gives me great pause and great concern. We should be praying right now as Christians because we are in interesting times and man, um, uh, we'll see what happens. Um, But you know, one thing I'm really glad about is, um, uh, by the way, I'm not what some people might think as a Christian nationalist. I'm not a Christian nationalist as much. I'm just a Christian. My, My title as a Christian doesn't need anything associated with it. I'm a Christian. Jesus is my King and the Lord. I I am a patriot, I love this country, and I I do hope that we figure this out because I'd love to see us pull up as we spiral down to destruction. I would love to see that. And I'm gonna do what I need to do as an American citizen to try to help in that direction. But as a pastor of a church, I wanna remind all of us, our citizenship is in heaven. We need to remember that Jesus is our King, not Trump, not Biden, not Hillary, you know, not DeSantis, like, like all, all of us, we get all up and tizzy about this and that. And I understand because it is our country, but remember, set your affections on things above and not on things of this earth. Uh, we we got to keep it in perspective here as Christians of what really matters. And the biggest thing that matters is Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And man, praise the Lord, we can be saved. And the people you work with can be saved. And you and I get to share the gospel of Jesus. Let's not forget the main thing. We can get bogged down in things that we deeply care about. Um, and meanwhile, we, we look at this where Jesus says, go an extra mile. Uh, if he gives you, you know, uh, if he asks, you know, sues you for your shirt, give him your coat. Like Jesus is taking us to a whole nother level. And this is what you and I need to be doing with our enemies and then praying about when those powers that be cross the line because only the Lord knows when that happens. And we have to be sensitive to him on that. And then on Sunday, we saw verses 43 through 48, which sort of piggybacks on just what we just taught. Uh, Jesus talked about, you know, yes be yes, and then eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but then he just hits it home uh, by saying, uh, you know, love your enemies, bless them which hate you, and do good to those that hate you and, and curse you, and pray for them that despitefully use you. This is, this is what Jesus says. So he takes it to the whole nother level. If you miss Sunday, it's probably one of the most important teachings we've done here at Athe, maybe ever. Uh, I really do believe that that's an important message for today. And I, and I end with that verse 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father which in heaven is perfect. Can I just, I, I've got just get a couple more minutes. Um, I want to show you something that the Lord showed me years ago, that, that there's three types of biblical perfection. And I want you to do this because this is encouraging. Because uh, when I said that on Sunday, be perfect, I was like, yeah, good luck with that. But let, well, let's end with this. There's three types of biblical perfection here in Matthew chapter five, and here they are. Number one, the first one is positional perfection. You and I get to experience perfection right now if you're a Christian, uh, because we are declared righteous. The Lord declares us positionally in Christ uh, perfect. Hebrews 10, 14, jot this down. Um, uh, for by one offering he have perfected, that's, that's good news, forever them that are sanctified. So for the Christian, you are perfected. Colossians two ten, and you are complete, another word translated as perfect, uh, in him which is the head of all principality and power. So remember, Jesus is the answer. For the Christian, you're already there. Positionally in Christ, we are declared righteous. The Lord looks at you as though you're perfect. He sees you in your perfection, which is kinda cool because I sure don't see me or I don't even see you in perfection at all. But the Lord looks at us and says, my bride is perfect. My bride is perfect. I love that. Um, number two, we, we have then a, a, what I would call progressive perfection, where it's a progressive work. We're, we're progressing as time goes by. When you became a Christian, the Lord started maturing you and growing you to, toward perfection. It's, I, I'm calling that profe- progressive. Second uh, Corinthians seven one it says, having therefore these promises, Lord, let us cleanse ourselves. That's that perfection progressively. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh uh, and the spirit, perfecting, that's an act of, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So hopefully you and I are moving in that direction of perfection. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, um, the Lord tells how he wants his church to roll. It says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting, there's that word of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of the Christ. So part of that progression is studying the word and being part of church with its leadership and rolling together as a church. That's gonna be that progressive moving on to perfection. So you got number one, positional perfection. Number two, progressive perfection. And thirdly, finally, promised perfection. This is the one that's ultimate and legitimate uh, in all types, practically, spiritually, futuristically where everything's going to be perfect at some point Ephesians 5:27 tells us that Jesus is going to present us his church himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but it should be holy and without Blemish. The Lord is gonna present us a perfect church before the Lord. Revelation chapter 21, verses four and five. God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall be any more pain. Former things will be passed away. Thank the Lord for that. And he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. That's that promised perfection that we're gonna have. Philippians 3, 15. Let us therefore as many as be perfect. Thus minded, and if in anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this even to you. Um, this is Philippians three twenty one. Who shall God? Who shall change our your and my our vile body, that is to be uh, fashioned like His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able. Even to subdue all things to himself. That's that promised perfection. So these are the three perfections the Bible teaches. Positional perfection in Christ. That's the one that should make you feel good right now. Man, in Christ, I'm declared perfect and righteous. That's what gets us to heaven, by the way. Then progressive perfection is what the Lord then works in us. And then ultimately, when we get to heaven and see the Lord, we'll see the promised. So we have things to look forward to in that. Well, I've taken so much time, let's pray, call it an evening. Lord, we, th- we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your word says, right thinking. Lord, we live in confusing times and we see a nation that we love and care about, um, seemingly spiraling out of control in so many ways. And Lord, we, we pray your will be done. Give us wisdom and knowing how to act and guide our thoughts and prayers, guide our actions. Lord, we wanna represent you well. And your church, we wanna represent you well. So give us wisdom, Lord. I pray you'd cover this nation, forgive us for our sins, Lord, and help us to turn. And may there be revival. Um, Lord, I don't see any way that's gonna happen, but you know all things. And we do pray for revival, Lord, that many might come to know you, even if it is in the downfall of America. Lord, I pray that many, many people would come to know you and be saved by the fall of America or by the blessing of America, either way. Your will, Lord, that's what we really long for. So give us wisdom. Bless these, your people, who've carved out this evening for Bible study. We pray blessing on them. May it bring forth good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.